Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Starwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Heck yeah. That makes this Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what is going wrong and what is going right with the American news media business fancy pants. And happy Wednesday. We're recording early this week, my friend. How are you? I am good. And Chris, I can weigh in on what's going right because I have a really great favorite item this week that I am excited to talk about. Normally my least favorite section, but I Ooh, have DTs. a wonderful item. Yeah. Like, you've got yes. the DTs going. <laughs> wow. Exactly. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. It's a beautiful spring and life is good. And the school year is wrapping up and everybody's getting their summer plans together. You can, I think as, as you move into the parenthood in as, as school starts and other things, the school calendar really sort of becomes your whole calendar. And that's, that's when the change really feels like it's happening. So that's what it feels like for me. So what are the uh, boys doing this summer? Keeping it real. The man's children will be, we've got summer vacation plans firming up and we've got baseball and we've got, I assume, tennis and all sorts of stuff to pass the final for my eldest son, the final summer before high school begins. So, yay. Wow. Wow. We, since we are not in person this week, we have no uh, discussion of pastries. And in fact, I've had no pastries. It's good so for me. That's we good. Can just what, go. What I yes, need. good for your waistline. We can go straight to our front page. I love this item, Chris. I titled it in our little document here, Axios Reaps the Whirlwind, which is Axios sent a memo to employees yesterday instructing them that they are not permitted to protest the alleged Supreme Court pending ruling overturning Roe. And the reason they had to put this out was that two years ago, they told employees that they could participate in protests over the murder of George Floyd. And the memo reads as follows. Several have asked why we permitted people to attend protests after the George Floyd murder but discourage it for or against abortion. What we said was that we would stand behind anyone calling for racial justice and equality. This was before specific policy solutions were being debated. It was a fleeting moment of unity. <laughs> and now they have to, uh, and then first of all, I love that their memo is sent in Axios style. So it's like, first, some context. At colon the difference here colon so the difference here abortion is a human rights issue that has become a highly politicized topic with oh, very geez. specific policies being debated in washington as opposed to you know racial justice that nobody was debating because that's why protests and like violence was erupting all over the streets in all of the major cities uh across the country i mean it is so ridiculous and uh they are reaping the whirlwind of allowing their employees to take political positions. And uh, and then I also love that um, they say, to be clear, we've had people ask us if they could protest both for and against this ruling. And I mean, I would I would really like to meet the the pro-life Axios employee who I'm was sure. I, banging at Jim Van Dyke's door wanting to uh, like, you know, cheer the court's ruling. I'm sure that I'm sure they're telling the truth, but you have to just laugh. Because if you know how much I uh, find Axios is patronizing subheads so awful. And my the most annoying one, of course, is their be smart. Uh, <laughs> and that, on this one, it is be smart, colon. We screwed up with that first thing. And now we are rationalizing a way to get back. Exactly. Out of it so we don't have to keep doing this forever. Be smart. Chris, you will love this part uh, at the end. It says, we know this is hard. 
because this issue is so personal and runs so deep with many of you, but it is our strong wish that you do not protest on any political topic because it could undermine our trusted journalism, but they know it's hard. They know it's hard. How about don't freaking undermine your employer? We got to also do your job. We, we got a lot of response this, that are, we have a lot to talk about on this row stuff today. And we got a lot of feedback from our discussion yesterday or last week about the pointer piece that said it doesn't hurt if you let your opinion, if your reporters let their opinions be known, it doesn't hurt people's trust of the item and all and how just detached from human experience that is. And Ross Douthat wrote a great piece on the way Roe changed politics in America his New York Times column on it, very, you know, very, very good. And he, he, there's some parts in it that he doesn't, as a, as a columnist, and you, you know this feeling too, I hate to criticize people for what they don't write because this is the column he wanted to write and it's an excellent column. But, and he alludes to this, the issue, what Roe did was harden existing attitudes. If you look back to what, American attitudes about pro-choice, pro-life, and we're going to get to talking about that terminology here in a second. But if you look at the attitudes, basically what Roe did was freeze them in amber, right? It set those attitudes hard in their courses and made it and made it a national issue. But Ross's point that is germane to reporters, to journalists, which I think is worthwhile here, is you have a narrative in the press lately, which is that authoritarianism on the right is coming hard, right? So this is what a lot of the a lot of the coverage in America today, the narrative that was embraced since January 6th was authoritarianism is coming. America's having its authoritarian moment. Okay, fair enough. But what is all the discussion in the coverage or a lot of the discussion in the coverage about Roe v. Wade been? Well, a plurality of Americans support Roe v. Wade or a majority of Americans support Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court is not legitimate blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Do you understand how institutions work? Do you understand what we're actually talking about? I have seen, I've been on panels where I've been asked this question and talked about it this way, that somehow the government will lose its legitimacy if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. And you want to say, hey, guys, the Electoral College, the Senate confirming Joe Biden's victory, when you were talking about how we need to uphold these institutions, this is one of those institutions too, folks. I also appreciated in Ross's piece where he notes that there's this idea that the right is authoritarian and the left is trying to use the overturning of Roe to and, and like jam it in that narrative. Right. When in fact, this is not a repudiation of the democratic process. It's returning the decision to the democratic process. And and so it is difficult to cram into that narrative. All things must be about Donald Trump. Uh, rule number one of American journalism in the past five years. All stories must be about Donald Trump somehow. Chris, this really could have been my obsession for the week. And I hope to talk about it more. I have some ideas for what I want to do on it. But this has just jumped out at me so much over the past week since that Politico piece on the pending Supreme Court ruling that We used to talk about, or the media, the New York Times, the Post, et cetera, used to talk about pro-choice and pro-life as the two sides of the debate over abortion. And in the past week, I have not seen too many references to pro-choice and pro-life, but rather to pro-abortion rights and anti-abortion rights. And it's just like been such an eyesore to me, this sudden, almost Orwellian change in terminology. And it was a lot like, when it used to be pro-gay marriage or for gay marriage and against gay marriage. And that became your for marriage equality or your against Against marriage marriage equality. equality. Because of course, like being against a right is very bad and being against equality is very bad. And it's a way to like tilt the playing field ever so subtly through terminology. But all of a sudden, all these mainstream media outlets adopted at the same time, like some ruling came down from on high. But I hope to dig into this and come back with some with some data on when these things happen, whether they were adopted universally, et cetera, et cetera. So so as Orwell would say here, you have read and I'm sure assigned to 
your Beaconistas, George Orwell's essay on political language. Politics in the English language. And you have to, you know, it's controlling the terminology, controlling the language is, of course, crucial to trying to win the debate. And the pro-life, pro-choice construct, which endured for, I don't know, 30 years, something like that, came out of the fact that people who wanted to be in favor of abortion rights or access to elective abortions did not want to be pro-abortion because their argument was, we're not pro-abortion, see, we're just pro-access, we're pro-choice. And in, and the, re, the response from the anti-abortion crowd was to say, okay, well then if you're pro-choice and we're pro-life, we're not anti-you, we're pro-us. And that was a smart branding choice for that movement. And it took time, but those two phrases really hung in there. Now, the, we're, we're getting, I, I will say this, this is a little more honest. The people who are against abortion are really against abortion. That's, and that's okay, right? That's, that is okay to be against abortion. But the problem here is that the pro-abortion people aren't really, and, and I will give them the credit, except for the, you know, sickos, they're not really, I hope, in favor of abortions, they're still in favor of access to abortion. So this is a, a very hard one to put in term, to put in useful terms. And I feel like we've surrendered one aphoristic swamp for another one and describing people as anti-abortion rights is maybe better and more descriptive than pro-life, but there is definitely an, an imbalance here. Chris, who is willfully misunderstanding contraception? Oh my gosh. So Tate Reeves went on. Who uh, is Tate Reeves? He's the governor of Mississippi. And he went on uh, Jake Tapper's Sunday show on CNN. And there's this really weird thing that's going on, which is the morning after pill. And I'm sorry to take us into, for, for anybody with kids listening, my apologies here. The morning after pill, which is, depending on how you, when you believe life begins, is either abortion or not, right? because it's taken after unprotected sex or when one thinks that conception might have occurred. And then you get into this very weird space about, do you believe, and this is Jake Tapper is, and let's listen to a little clip of it right here. I want to ask you a philosophical question here, because I know you have said you believe that life begins at conception. Just to be clear, does that mean the moment of fertilization or the moment of implantation? I believe that life begins at conception. And as I've said repeatedly, and I know where the, this question is ultimately going with respect to, to birth control and other measures, I, I want to be clear. My view is that the next phase of the pro-life movement is focusing on helping those moms that maybe have an, an unexpected and unwanted pregnancy. The next phase of the pro-life movement is, is making sure that those babies once born um, have a productive life. Um, and while I'm sure there'll be conversations around America uh, regarding that, it's, it's not something that we've spent uh, a lot of time um, focused on. Does that mean that you believe that, that you believe the conception is the moment of implantation? Is that what you're saying? That, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, again, this is a debate. That so we can have Tapper is, is trying to pin Reeves down on the question of, do you think that life begins at the point where the sperm meets the egg, or do you believe that after the fertilized egg it attaches to the, the uterine wall, when do you believe that life begins? And Reeves wisely avoids this question. So this is a dumb discussion because nobody, as Reeves points out, is, and I, you know, the Republicans are very weird. I don't know. It's possible somewhere somebody is doing this, but to my knowledge, I don't know of any Republicans anywhere who want to ban actual contraceptives, right? I don't know of that because that's a Catholic thing, not a Protestant thing. And in the states where the Republicans are really in charge in big ways, they're Protestant states, they're evangelical states, mostly in the South, Appalachian and places like Oklahoma, not Roman Catholic states where there's big hangups about actual contraception. <clears throat> so very long way, very that's a very long way around, but the, the willful misunderstanding here award goes to the Washington Post. Here's the headline on a piece by Amy B. Wang and Sylvia Foster Frau. 
And I do love the name <laughs> Sylvia Foster Frau. But she says. I like that too. That's a great name. But the headline is Miss. Should just go ahead, Mississippi. It's not in print here. Mississippi governor doesn't rule out banning contraception <laughs> if Roe fails. So the, in, the in clearly implied message here is that if that is like a headline of the week. Yeah, that's right. That's Mississippi really good. Governor doesn't rule he out. He does not rule out coming into your house and raping and beating your wife either. Right. Uh, he did Washington, not rule that out. Washington Post does not rule out having terrible headlines. So the point of this headline and the point of the story is to make people think that the governor of Mississippi is open to banning birth control pill or condoms or whatever, right? Diet, the, the things that we, we normally associate with the concept of contraception or birth control. And I understand that there's a way that you can call the morning after pill contraception. I got it. I understand but this is a willful misunderstanding. This is scaremongering. This is gross. That's that is an amazing headline. Politico, Chris, the leaks continue on row. Yeah, I'm getting, um, this I'm is getting. from this morning, right? We're, we're recording on Wednesday and the headline from Politico is Alito's draft opinion overturning row is still the only one circulated inside the Supreme Court. And the lead is the Supreme Court is set to gather Thursday for the first time since the disclosure that it voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. And there's no sign that the court is changing course from issuing that ruling by the end of June. Uh, they note that Justice Alito's blunt draft majority opinion is still the only one circulated in the pending Mississippi abortion case. They have learned, which is big news because a lot of yeah. the reaction noted that well, this was a February opinion. Things may have changed. Some of the justices in the majority may have defected. We don't know. But they note that their reporting from a week ago actually does, they indicate, yeah. capture the current yeah. state of affairs on the court. That's big news. And that none of the conservative justices who initially sided with Alito have to date switched their votes. So it seems to me they have a damn good source well, inside the court uh, or, or or right i we're going to find out who the source for this stuff is i don't think we are this is a good chris eliana debate i don't okay. think we're going to find out why not why do you think why do you think we're going to find out because this person is crazy and will want to be known i assume if the, if this is true and i have my doubts i'm starting to get a little bit of, do you remember the anonymous essay that the New York Times published from- How a, hard would you laugh if I said, no, no, I don't remember that. Who was that? What happened? Remind me. Yes, of course, I remember anonymous. Who turned out to be like, you know, a no-name turd. A nobody, right. Yeah. Well, I don't know whether he is that, but he is he is, he is certainly not the person. Well, he now says that he has uh, Miles Taylor. He was like, you know, not- like a, the chief of staff to the Homeland Security, Secretary of Homeland Security. He now says he has the Havana syndrome. Oh, dear. So that's the latest from Anonymous. <laughs> oh, dear. Which is, the, which is the, the ringing in the ears and the hearing problems that overseas that American operators and State Department people say that they've been afflicted with from overseas that may be tied uh, to something that was tried on U.S. embassy workers in yeah. Havana. So here's the thing. This Politico story is crazy, right? Because it says not only do we know for sure that this Alito story that, you know, what was that, two weeks ago now? Not only do we know that this is true, this is what's happening. It's going down. This is what the justices think. Nothing else has been circulated. The vote still stands the same way. The number of people who could possibly know this includes who the justices i think it's a it's like 50 people because each justice has four clerks so nine times four the craziness about, about 50 the, the craziness the brazenness the recklessness of this leak um i would just have to think that the person wants to be caught that they think that they're doing a good thing here and i I just I'm starting to have my doubts about the source because it's so reckless and 
that they, I believe they will get caught. I believe John Roberts, even if they're not crazy enough to want to be caught, that this is such a serious breach and so damaging to the Supreme Court that Roberts will see to it and and the other justices are going to see to it. Because if this stands, right, if, the, if, this is, if this is true, number one, and number two, if it is predictive if this if this is how it all goes this this is a, a terrible assault so i i i'm really just starting to have my doubts about this the source that they've got i'm skeptical i think of course if the source wants to be outed maybe you're right them them will know but i do not think that any investigation by the court is going to find this source because i do not think the court is going to bring the fbi in and I do not think the court itself has the tools to find the leaker. I don't think the court will abide bringing in the executive branch and having the uh, an arm of the executive branch, which, you know, the DOJ and the FBI under the DOJ, nosing around, interviewing the justices, maybe members of their families, et cetera. And I don't think that the court itself has the tools to figure out who did this. Well, I don't know. It's just crazy is what I know. This this is. But I, I am I am certain. Sorry, I, I realized. Go ahead. I just interrupted you. Not at all. I, I I just know it's crazy. And I'm starting to have my doubts and I'm starting to get some anonymous prem, uh, some uh, anonymous emanations from this story. Are you having anonymous PTSD? <laughs> <laughs> I I did not have any anonymous PTSD because I knew that it was fake from the not fake but it was an overblown flummery it was a it was it was pure corn pudding from the moment i read the first new york times op-ed that was like oh pardon me if i don't mind saying that i'm a little bit of the hero here kind of saving the republic okay and so if you guys don't mind we're just going to be super busy saving america from donald trump from the inside okay and it's like (laughs) well homie if that was true you would never, ever, ever, ever have written this. So shut up at your face. I think this is different because I do think this information is accurate. It has the feel of accuracy to me. Of but, course, like this person might come out in Peacock, but this does seem accurate to me. And it it has a feel of seriousness in a way that the anonymous thing did. But how would they know what the justices, what thoughts, what, I mean, they don't know. A clerk no, would know. A clerk would know if an official draft had been circulated. What this story intimates is that nothing has changed. The source is, is leading one to believe that nothing has changed since February. That's the decision. The majority is in favor of it. Here it comes. Boom. I don't think that's true. And I don't think there's anyone. Conversations among justices, thoughts among justices themselves, discussions, in, you know, by the vending machine or whatever, wherever they go, uh, whatever they do. I don't know. I don't know how it goes, but I think this is overwritten. And I think I hope this is overwritten in the sense that I hope that it wasn't dropped like a bomb in February. And then they just all turn their backs on each other and haven't thought any more about it since then. I think that I think it's fishy. I love this next item on our front page. And thank you to reader Andrew who emailed us about this. I want to read Andrew's email. Let me pull it up because I had a different take than Andrew, but I loved Andrew raising the question for us. So let me pull it up. Andrew writes, hi, Eliana and Chris. This article might be a good topic of discussion. And he sends the AP article that we are about to talk about, which is, The AP article is headlined, Major Companies Stay Mom on Thorny Abortion Issue for Now. And Andrew says, this is more of an example of a trope of journalism in journalism that I've observed emerging, particularly post George Floyd. I find these kinds of articles deeply frustrating as the politicization of everything continues. No longer is staying neutral on an issue possible. And he says, since when do wire services report stories on non-events? The big headline here is that a list of major companies randomly selected, as far as I can tell, haven't said or done anything. How does this count as journalism other than ideologically driven journalism seeking to shame people and companies not abiding by their preferences? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am quoting sparingly from or selectively from Andrew's email. Chris, uh, what did you think? I had a I have a take on this, but what did you think? I I thought the SAP story was bad, but, but I actually did think that there was a story here. 
Well, I think uh, like uh, Axios. <laughs> yes. How do but, we be smart about this? Well, I, th I think like Axios. The so these companies that in the in the and in the Trump pandemic, George Floyd era, had a end of history. Like this is this is we're having a moment, and it really started with uh, Me Too. But there was a period of time where it was like all the old rules are gone. We are remaking the world anew. We're having a moment. We're having a conversation. We're having a whatever. You're like, well, guys, I hate to break it to you, but like on race, we've talked about very little else, relatively speaking, in American public life for the past, I don't know, 70 years. So like, hey, seriously, we've been, we've been talking, whether you like how the conversation has gone, we've been talking about it. And this idea that there was Ali Ali oxen free moment in American history where all we, we would radically overthrow previous notions and that justice would be da, 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 da. And obviously that's not how human beings work. That's not how human nature functions. So these companies that are like, we're getting political, we're leaning in on blankety, 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 blank, and we're going to get involved now find themselves being asked by the Associated Press. So you were really excited about Black Lives Matter. How do you feel about Roe v. Wade? And these companies are like, oh, no. Oh, no. If I, you mean if I have an opinion about this political issue, you're going to expect me to have a political issue, a, a political opinion about that political issue? And I agree with the, the correspondent. What's his name again? Andrew. Andrew, great point. I agree completely that this is an article in search of a story. Knock, knock. Hey, now, look, I'm a little more sympathetic to the fact that these companies did put themselves in this space, right? If they have opinions about that other stuff, maybe are they going to have an opinion about this stuff? But I, I will certainly agree that there is an implicit pressure here from the Associated Press to these institutions to have an opinion. And I think that is activist journalism and of a, of a dubious kind, especially for a wire service. Here's my hot take, Chris. I'm ready. The AP totally missed the story here. Their story was stupid. But shout out to Jug Judd Legum, who runs the popular info substack, who got the real story, which is that a corporate PR giant called Zeno mm -hmm. advised its high profile corporate clients to avoid commenting on the draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. And that to me seemed super newsworthy because it seemed to me that the corporate giants that issued comments about George Floyd and this, that and the other and saw what happened to Disney in Florida are like Axios reaping the whirlwind mm -hmm. and they are now being advised to keep their mouths shut on contentious political issues. That is a real news story. Yep. And the AP totally missed what's happening. And it seems to me, I'm going to call this the DeSantis effect. And a friend of mine wrote me about this and said, companies now realize that there's a risk to spouting off on public policies that don't have anything to do with their businesses and that their virtue signaling about George Floyd and racial justice and we're for all the good things is not cost free. DeSantis went, took the fight to Disney and made the case for the other side and showed that he would push back and make them pay. And it seems to me, I'm just going to call this the DeSantis effect. They're now being advised to, to be quiet. That's a new, I think that's a new story here. He will make them pay for political speech. If he disagrees with it, he will not make them pay for political speech. If he agrees with correct, it. he will make them pay for political speech when it benefits him to demagogue the issue. He will not make them pay. I, one of my favorite, my favorite parts about the whole DeSantis story was, and I think overlooked in coverage a lot, the constitutionally obtuse uh, social media bill that DeSantis signed in Florida Pass and is now gummed up in the courts makes a special carve out for Disney. If you operate, if you operate a theme park in the Sunshine State, never you mind. 
none of these restrictions will apply to you if you happen to operate a theme park in the state of Florida. And then, you know, two months later or whatever, they turn around and are, are savaging Disney. I think that the DeSantis effect is real and it is troubling because if the point becomes, well, actually, no, I'll say this. If the, if the net effect is that both sides abuse their power and companies decide to stay silent, that probably has some beneficial, that probably it's a lot of beneficial effects for the society, but I certainly don't like government using its power to try to manipulate the speech of corporate entities or individuals. Chris. Tell me. The Pulitzers. Ugh. Do we care? I, I, we debated this. Listeners should know we debated Ugh. whether or not we would subject people to the discussion Ugh. of the Pulitzer Prizes. It's... The Washington Post won the Public Service Award for its cover oh. January 6th. The Miami Herald won breaking news reporting for, and that actually, they deserve it because that was riveting, amazing coverage. Do you remember the building collapse in Florida? Yes. Great coverage. I remember it like I remember Anonymous. Great coverage. Amazing. The Tampa Bay Times won for good local coverage for investigative, the investigative award about a battery recycling plant and safety problems there. And that's the kind of local muckraking that we need lots of to, to hold people accountable. The, the dubious category of explanatory reporting. <laughs> Shouldn't all reporting be explanatory? I'm not sure. Shouldn't uh, it be? Who won for that? This is the staff of the Quanta magazine of New York, notal, notably, Natalie Walchover for coverage that revealed the complexities of building the James Webb Space Telescope designed to facilitate groundbreaking astronomical and cosmological research. The New York Times won the National Reporting Prize for fatal traffic stop by police. Their, their package on that. Nothing on Afghanistan. Interestingly, I... Yeah, there is. The staff of the New York Times for the toll of U.S. airstrikes in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Yeah, but not on the, uh, not on the oh, humanitarian Yeah, of catastrophe. course, of course. Uh, shock. I'm so, color me, color me. Oh. Not surprised. Oh. I honestly, I told Chris, what, what do we call it? Backstage, like before we started green recording. Room. Yeah, 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 in the green room, that... I have not had time to go through these carefully, so I really don't have import informed opinions and juries out on whether I will actually be able to force myself to dig in and read some of this coverage and come back next week with. Don't do it to us. Don't make some informed don't, opinion. Don't make these. us do two. Don't make us do the Pulitzers. But I just weeks. don't care. <laughs> right. I think that that it, look, I think me well, and the rest of America. I think I think I think the Pulitzers have tried in recent years to rebalance what had been sort of like the Nobel Peace Prize, where you're like, oh, yeah, of course, ah, there, ah, oh, it's Jimmy Carter, oh, it, ah, Yasser Arif, I see, like where you were just like, yeah, 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 the the very predictable kind of left conventional thinking, blech. and I think the Pulitzers have done a good job uh, in balancing some of that out with stuff like the Miami Herald and really making local coverage better and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm going to withhold uh, some of the disdain that I feel and, and credit them for the, the good, the good, good strides they've made and hope that we don't have to talk about it for a year. I do like this next item. Okay. Uh, Everybody. A Washington post op-ed calling yeah. for the cancellation of the renaming of George Washington university, because we have to cancel George Washington and, I pulled what I think is the money quote or the who two money it? quotes. Tell them who wrote it first? A senior at George Washington University. Uh, so, like, no one, anybody cares about Caleb Francois. Francois, I don't know. Probably Francois. I'll say Caleb uh, Francois. Okay. So, Caleb writes Not only do we need to rename George Washington University, so the headline of the piece is George Washington University needs a new name. And Caleb writes, the racist visions of James Madison, Winston Churchill, oh. and others are glorified through building names, programs, statues, and libraries that honor their memory. The controversial Winston Churchill Library must go. Chris, are you privy to all the controversy over the Winston Churchill Library? So, Mr. Francois is it Haitian, I believe. 
Wait, let me finish this quote. He says, the university's contentious colonial moniker must go. Even the university's name, mascot and motto, hail the George Washington must be replaced. The hypocrisy of GW in not addressing these issues is an example of how black voices and black grievances go ignored and highlights the importance of strong black leadership. So any he he is a I'm I'm sure a impress I and he's from Florida. I I'm it's unclear through the limited research that I've done whether he is a Haitian immigrant or child of Haitian immigrants or whatever that is. But so and I'm sure he is a, an impressive young man indeed. This is of course a, I am not sure about that, but I'm, I'm I, sure. I applaud I'm, your your I'm, charitable spirit. I'm sure he is an impressive young man indeed. But this is of course an incredibly ignorant, incredibly foolish, incredibly self-defeating piece. This is obviously going to be a lot more popular or consumed on the right than on the left. It is the when you attack George Washington, Winston Churchill, and James Madison, three of the great stalwarts of human freedom and liberty throughout history, right? Three of the three of the greatest of them all and say that your overpriced school, elite school in Foggy Bottom, Washington, D.C., which the last time I checked cost, you know, $75,000 a year for people who didn't get into Duke to, <laughs> to that the school must be renamed to fight against colonialism is, of course, not what most people on the left think. But this is, of course, catnip for the right. When people with normal liberals say, we don't want to rename things for, we don't want to tear down George Washington statue. We don't want to take away Winston Churchill and, and, and Madisonian democracy. Republicans or right-wingers will say, here's the piece. Here is the piece written by you know a 21-year-old person who, who obviously is deeply ignorant about history. I'm sorry, but this is a, a, a selfish, self-seeking action by the Washington Post. And this is clickbait. And it's clickbait that comes at a cost not only to this person, Mr. Francois, but also to the normal people or the, the people who have more reasonable arguments around him. And this is a great reflection. David French's term nut picking. But in this case, what makes it particular? What is nut picking? So nut picking is where you go and find the person from the other side, the nut, you pick them out and you bring them back over to your side and you say, look, so it's the, 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 it's a part to whole fallacy. So you find the, the, the nuttiest nut from the other side, you bring him over to your side and drag him on Twitter and him or her on Twitter and say, look at this. This is what they're all like. This is what every one of these people thinks. Every Republican is Charlie Herbster and every Democrat is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, there are no other kinds. This is particularly egregious because it is self-defeating nutpicking. So the Washington Post has an increasingly leftward, intensified left slant going on, like it gets hotter and hotter. And if that's true, then they should not want to discredit ideas about rethinking colonial heroes and so on and so forth and dangling this piece of hot fat over the salivating dogs of the right side of the internet does not serve any any good purpose for the left or the anti-colonialist movement. Speaking of the salivating dogs on the right side of the internet, <laughs> this is a great transition to our next item. What is it? Uh, oh. Media uh, on, one American, on American one, News. One American News Network. I love this. So it's... One American News. So I'll just read you the lead from the. So One American News is like the Fox knockoff. The right wing cable cha, cable network One American News on Monday ran a pre-recorded thirty-second segment acknowledging that there was quote no widespread voter fraud close quote by Georgia election workers in the twenty twenty presidential election. The segment appears to be part of a recent settlement relating to a defamation lawsuit brought by the network by two such workers, and they're they're running it, and and so it goes. Let's just. Pour one out for the, 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 the thirsty ones who tried so hard to have their moment and make destroying the Republic their, their quick path to cable celebrity. Next, big moves or small moves for Chuck Todd over at MSNBC, where well, his tell, show Yeah, tell was, people what happened. It is moving from 
So Chuck Todd's weekly show, Meet the Press Daily, is moving from MSNBC, where it was moved from 4 p.m. or it was moved from 5 p.m. to 1 p.m. It is now moving uh, from 1 p.m. on MSNBC to MSNBC's streaming service, NBC News Now, which I had never heard of. So why don't they uh, put it all on Peacock? This is what I want to know. Can't it just go on Peacock? Very confusing. Unclear what this really means. I don't know. What's your take, Chris? Quote, his enthusiasm about growing Meet the Press Beyond the Sunday show and involving the legacy program for the streaming audience is a prime example of our mission at News Now. Oh, yeah, that seems like really trying to like to bring viewers, the turd, you know, you, that is the second time you've used the word turd <laughs> the show. I'll just say uh, of of our mission at News Now now to bring viewers the best of what NBC News has to offer. Janelle Rodriguez. Senior Vice President of Editorial for NBC News said in a memo to the staff, according to the Los Angeles Times. So I don't know why anybody who hosts a Sunday show would want to be on TV every day. I don't understand it. I don't know why Chuck Todd wanted to be on MSNBC every day. Maybe it's money, but it seems I, I, I hope it's money because if it's access or celebrity or influence, no. Right. Like do a great Sunday show, have an awesome, possome Sunday show that you get ready for, that you prepare for, that's deep and it's thoughtful and it's good. And you focus on that. Don't just be like, you know, dribbling this stuff out like a bunch of tweets across the week. And then I have to ask about what is the relative value then? Let's say this is true. And he's not being my read of the situation is Trevor Noah badly roasted. Chuck Todd. And of course, the irony around Chuck Todd is Chuck Todd is, I don't know, it, I was did he work for a Democrat? I get him confused. Tapper and Todd. No, Tapper worked for a Democrat. Yeah, but I, Tapper, Tapper worked for Marjorie Margolis Mezvinsky, who's who's Chelsea Hillary, Clinton's yeah. Chelsea Clinton's mother in law. I thought Chuck Todd had had some sort of other job. I don't know, before journalism. I know he worked at the hotline. So maybe that was it. I don't know. But certainly the reputation, certainly the reputation for Chuck Todd was not that he was a conservative. Let's put it that way. But he has become an object of intense hatred for some on the left because of what is now derided as both sidesism that he is. Whereas Jake Tapper has made a big show out of not asking, we're not going to talk to liars here and we're going to be, he's very. Well, Chris. Hmm. I am firmly, I don't want to like sink Chuck Todd's career here by saying this, but you know, hashtag team Chuck over here. Well, I, I mean, I don't need any of it, whatever. Like I'm a I, Chuck fan. Sorry, Chuck. I hope that doesn't like really twist the knife in you or something. I'm, I'm team Chris Wallace. The bring, bring back Chris Wallace is what I say. Not me. But for me, Chuck Todd was treated very unfairly for his that he was some stooge for the right or some whatever and trevor noah oh my the, gosh if chuck is the best we can get for our stooge that's yikes so i love Tre you chuck i love you chuck but i don't don't exactly think you're one of us but i think you're wonderful okay so trevor Noah. <laughs> sorry stipulated <laughs> so trevor noah uh, at the white house correspondence dinner brutally roasted chuck todd by saying follow-up he made a joke basically said something about a follow-up question they said you know you wouldn't know what that is chuck todd playing into the very online very twitter mob against chuck todd now may or may not have been coincidence but the following week chuck todd loses his show on msnbc and is moved to the streaming platform at a time where streaming platforms see chris wallace comma cnn plus are not not prestige spots and i think that's probably I know that that's unfair to Todd. I also think, though, that all having been said, that I would say to Chuck Todd, not that he would ever care what I think about anything, stop doing a daily show and just do the Sunday show. The daily show is going to sap your energy. Think about, and I, I know he does, I'm sure he does all the time. Anybody would have to think about Tim Russert and be more like that. Not saying you can't do TV during the week, not saying whatever, but just do the Sunday show. If you're doing an hour of streaming every day, you're wasting your energy. Make the Sunday show better. You have to do the next item. Oh, what is it? You don't even want to say it. It's that bad. 
I all I my only take on it is that Tom Brady is a beautiful, oh, beautiful man. Oh, so yes, yes, if yes, you yes, want to yes. have any other take, you need to you need to offer it. Well, Colin, uh, you know, Colin and I have a duty to the men of America. Producer Colin. Uh, Colin and I have a duty to the men of America to bring the the intense journalistic fight going on right now about Tom Brady's contract with Fox Sports. So Tom Brady, who I find utterly insipid, I find just crushingly insipid. And that's even for a professional athlete. Uh, and I don't find him entertaining or interesting in any way. Well, I find him interesting because he's a, a super weird person, obviously. But I don't find, I, I put him in the category of Tiger Woods. Like, I'm sure you're really good at it and everything. And, you know, you're one of the greatest of all time. And wow. But I'm not particularly wanting to hang around. And I, I, I'd take 10 Terry Bradshaws for every one, for every one Tom Brady when it comes to being on TV. You got to have a little, you got to be a little interesting. So Tom Brady, the retired slash unretired slash re-retired slash not, not clear. It was reported by the New York Post part of the same parent company as Fox Sports, that he would be paid $375 million for a 10-year deal on Fox Sports after he eventually leaves whenever his, whenever his real retirement does come and that he will be paid an average of $37 million or so a year for 10 years to be on television. And it's appallingly large cannot possibly be worth what they're paying and is stifling or is, is stunning. So what, what makes it journalistically interesting is that the next day, the parent company that also owns the, that also owns the New York post says, actually that story is not true. And they say, quote, what, has been reported isn't an accurate description of the deal, and we have not released details beyond what was disclosed on our quarterly earnings call, Fox Corporate spokesman Brian Nick said. So this is NBC's reporting, and they are, of course, lerving it. That Like NBC is rolling around in this where you have Fox on Fox violence. So it's great for them because they've got their own, they've got it all. So I just think it's, I think that the, it's, it's totally unclear what the post story got wrong, if anything, because this that could be one of those denials where it's like, yeah, but his middle initial is R and you didn't say <laughs> that it was R. So it was factually said it was factually inaccurate and you got his middle initial wrong. So it could it could be just that or it could be something else. But from a leaving aside the accuracy question for one moment, just to go to the whatever they're if they're paying Tom Brady anything like this, this is the dumbest thing that I have seen. This is truly, this is a powerfully, powerfully bad bet. He is a beautiful, beautiful man. You're just sticking with the, the, the corruption of the My flesh. My only take. My only take. Uh, I, that brings us to, that means that it's time to wrap the front page. If that is the only take I have. And it right. is time for our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories that we couldn't get out of our heads. Naturally, Chris, mine is about CNN. So this week, we got a new White House press secretary. We learned that we will get one. Her name is Karine Jean-Pierre, and she will succeed White House press secretary Jen Psaki, the White House announced. My favorite part of the story, naturally, is that poor her partner is CNN correspondent Suzanne Malvo, and the White House cannot say whether Karine uh, Jean-Pierre will recuse herself from CNN-related matters. We have uh, this in a free beacon story, but this led me to do some digging around on what exactly are the other incestuous connections between the Biden administration and CNN and just how many people are like, you know, how many people serving in this administration are married to people or living with people at CNN. So we found a few others in the Democratic firmament, not not necessarily the Biden administration, 
proper, but our, the, the piece read, the White House did not respond to a request for comment about whether Jean-Pierre would recuse herself in dealings with CNN. Malveaux's colleagues at CNN include Valerie Jarrett's daughter, CNN justice correspondent Laura Jarrett. Reminder, these are the people who are bringing you the news. And Israel ambassador Tom Nides, his wife, Virginia Mosley, who serves as CNN's senior vice president of news gathering. You know, not a whole lot of connections to Republican administrations over there. Well, yes, that's my uh, obsession. This this is uh, sort of damning with faint praise or this is a, a, a back. Is this maybe a backhanded defense? Incestuous rottenness between television news organizations and the administrations they cover and politicians are deep and powerful. Bush, George Bush's daughter on the Today Show and I'm sure Huckabee Fox times Huckabee times Huckabee times Fox. I haven't thought it through, but we could we could think of many, many, many instances where this kind of cozy coverage and where you have people who are friends. And look, there's a part of it which can't be avoided, which is if you like Suzanne Malvo live and work in this space in an accomplished career over a long period of time as she has, your life is going to touch, like, who do you know? Who do you work with? Who are you going to date? Who are you going to marry? What do you get? Like, that's what, that's what happens. There's sort of a part of it. That's a natural outgrowth of it. But then there's the other Mark Leibovich, this town version of it. Speaking of Tim Russert, Mark, which Leibovich. is this. Yeah. Uh, the Mark Leibovich's book, this town starts at Tim Russert's funeral and how it is a, orgy of, you know, self, self-serving, social climbing, blah, 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 blah. I, I have, I don't want to, I hate saying this because it's mean, but I have low expectations for the adversarial nature of CNN's coverage of the Biden White House, regardless of who the White House press secretary shares her life with. And I, I know that this is this, and, and it is definitely Leibovich territory, and it's why, you know, it's why everything is gross, but it's also sort of, I guess I would say, I would call it quotidian. What is your obsession, Chris? My obsession, Adam, I'm glad you asked, because my obsession is the coverage of political primaries. So this is my real job, is talking about politics and- Wait, wait, what are we doing here? Uh, this is- <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> This is the sidelight. This is the just this, kidding. Just kidding. This is my side hustle. They'll make sure you pre-order broken news available from Hachette Book Group USA, available August twenty-third. The piece I wrote for the Dispatch: Trump did not invent awful Republican primaries. I'm just going to read you the the headlines that I cited in the lead. To read the coverage of the still young midterm primary season on the Republican side is to read of royalty. Former President Donald Trump is, quote, the Republican Party kingmaker, close quote, whose, quote, endorsement is worth its weight in political gold, close quote, and who has, quote, enduring power, close quote. I write, kingmaker Midas Trump's enduring power, we are told, is the, quote, cause of the unrelenting nastiness, close quote, between candidates, and that even when the former president isn't involved, the races are, quote, mostly about Trump anyway. And that's just wrong. Sometimes you have to be close to a story to have the confidence to see something wrong, that is really wrong, to see the the unclothed emperor, as it were. And the one that turned the lock in the key for me was the coverage of West Virginia's second district primary this week between <clears throat> West Virginia lost a congressional seat. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so you had a member on member primary in the new second district which was the old first district and should still be the first district. But anyway, so that's my former home district. That's where I grew up. And I know the people involved. I know there is no place in the world. Like I'll put it this way. There was a Nebraska primary too. And I know more about the political geography and demography of Nebraska than most Americans and some Nebraskans, maybe most, because <laughs> I have to know all the States and I have to know all the stuff, but I know Northern West Virginia the best. And when I saw this coverage, it was like, it's, a, it's about Trump. It's about Trump. And I was like, well, no, it's about the map. Certainly Trump's endorsement is consequential there. And January 6th is consequential there. But this was a redistricting map 
that heavily favored Alex Mooney, the Trump endorsed candidate in the race. And it also just favored if Donald Trump had never existed, Alex Mooney would still be a nationalist. Like if there were if there were no MAGA, he would still be MAGA. That's the kind of candidate he is. And I went back and and just walked readers through over the past 10 years. And I, I mark it to the 2006 Senate primary in Rhode Island, where uh, a guy named Steve Laffey primaried the delightfully ridiculous Lincoln Chafee, who is still then a Republican. You'll remember Lincoln Chafee from his campaign as a Democratic presidential candidate to bring back the metric system. And Lincoln Chafee was still then a Republican and he got primary and it was ugly and it was wasteful and it was nuts. And why would you, you're not going to elect a conservative Republican from Rhode Island. Why are you doing this? And what followed in 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014 were the craziest primaries. The, you remember when Sarah Palin backed the guy in Alaska who beat Lisa Murkowski in the, in the tiny turnout Republican primary, and then Murkowski beat him in a write-in, or when they, Richard Murdoch defeated Richard Luger in Indiana and gave away a safe Republican seat, or Todd Akin in Missouri. So we had, Christine O'Donnell was not a witch from Delaware, but did manage without sorcery to lose an easy Republican Senate seat, and on and on and on. So the coverage of the midterms pretends that the Republican Party, like five minutes before Donald Trump arrived, was healthy, balanced, at peace with itself, doing fine. And then Trump arrived and everything changed. And that's not true. Donald Trump has intensified a lot of this stuff and he has put a label on it. He has branded it with the MAGA brand. But he is a he is exploiting a pre-existing condition that you could take back to Pat Buchanan, not just in 1992, but you could take back to Pat Buchanan in the Nixon campaign of 68. This is a pre-existing condition in the Republican Party. And the obsessive, as I write, the one thing that Trump and Democrats and the press agree on is that Donald Trump should be the center of every story, that all roads lead back to Trump for coverage. And in the primary coverage, it's just not true. And I'll, I'll shut up after I one more thing. To pretend that the Northern District of West Virginia is the same place as Nebraska. So Trump's backed candidate, and I believe Alex Mooney would have beaten David McKinley if there was no Trump, just for all the reasons I described. But it is Donald Trump is very popular in West Virginia. And then you go out to Nebraska and Trump's back candidate, Charles Herbster, loses. What are we to infer about Trump's power? I was, I've been asked on television. I've been asked in other things. What are we supposed to infer about Trump's power? Well, remember, elections are more about voters than they are about candidates usually. What we want to know is, how is Northern West Virginia different than Nebraska? And I will just, I, I, will, run, I will run through very quickly. It hurts me to say this, but West Virginia is the third oldest, tied for the third oldest state in the country, Nebraska is the 48th oldest. So it's the, the third youngest. Nebraska is 25th on median household income. West Virginia is 49th. Only Mississippi has a lower per capita household income. Educational attainment, a third of Nebraskans over 24 uh, have college degrees. 21% of West Virginians over 24 have college degrees. The point, and the, those numbers would all be better for Northern West Virginia, which is more prosperous and more educated than Southern West Virginia. But the point being, Different electorates respond in different ways to different kinds of candidates with different inputs. This Trump-obsessed, one-size-fits-all coverage not only is harmful to Republicans and everything, but it's also harmful to the overall conversation we're having in America. Instead of talking about meeting voters where they are, we're just assuming that all of these people are the same when they're not. Chris, it is, it is asking a lot of our press <laughs> not to treat the right as the the like lumpen proletariat but but they do it to the left too they also they also this is how you end up with bernie sanders this is how joe biden wins is we got all this coverage about this is what democrats are like and they got to south carolina and african-american democrats were like no we're not we're not we're not like that we're we're not going to send that strange old man from vermont uh we're going to pick this other strange old man from delaware Who's, a, who's less strange? It is time for my 
favorite segment of the week. Our reader mail segment. And we have good mail. We already talked about reader mail from Andrew, but Chris, Mike P wrote us a long email about hashtag syrup concerns, but then his follow-up was even better. He what wrote his syrup concerns. I'm sorry. We're not going to read the his litany of syrup concerns because it was really his follow-up that was wonderful. Okay. Uh, he said he followed up to note. Also, one time I threw up on Howard Dean's shoes. Thought you'd appreciate knowing that. Good. It, shoes. Thank, is, thank uh, you for that. Thank you for that, Mike P. At least it was the shoes, Mike P. At least it was the shoes. That's yeah. You should have. You, sh- you should have uh, aimed higher. Come oh, on, Mike. Come on. Do better. Do better. And then Dean, I love Dean's email. Thank you. Dean wanted to tweak my definition of the term based. Yes, Taylor Lorenz. Says, Taylor Lorenz yes, had said that Matt that Drudge had thought that based. Matt Drudge was based. So that- Dean says. Based doesn't quite mean super conservative. In most circles, it's applied to anyone that goes to controversial lengths when promoting or defending their views. At the Free Beacon, this would probably end up applying to people who are super conservative. And the term does have a long history of referring to anti-woke or right-wing figures, dot, dot, dot. But anyone can be based. Elon Musk is probably the epitome of based behavior, even though he's only nominally right-wing. The less handsome Chris Chris Licht would definitely count as based within the media universe in ways that very right wing figures like Molly Hemingway, who plays more to inside of the tent, aren't. It's a relative term. Super helpful, Dean. So so what I want, I want to just I want to tug on the thread briefly. What he's saying is somebody who's based is not identifiably does not come forward as a right winger. But it, it it turns out they're based in the, a right wing space, or that their that their assumptions uh, or worldview may be rooted in a conservative worldview in a way that was unexpected. I think it is being intentionally controversial. Okay. Oh. So Elon Musk is intentionally controversial. Chris Licht, by going into CNN and saying "stop freaking tweeting," is being like knowingly and intentionally controversial. I see. So it's that's a, based. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Peterson is based. What's his I name? thought that is that's a Joe Rogan is based. Joe Rogan. You knew. Um, you knew who I meant. But Chris, this is the best part of the email from Dean. He says, "Again, really like the podcast." Chris definitely deserves more love from the reader mail. And it's a little suspicious that praise of him never seems to make it into the show. I like that shade thrown in my direction. Please continue to provide counterweight to Eliana's rabid partisanship and crack open another ice cold can of Fresca for the diet grapefruit beverage aficionados in the audience. It's Dean. uh, We love you. I wish I I wish I was recording an AEI today. I'm making do. Though it is my favorite, Dean, I will tell you, it is my favorite sparkling water, Wegmans Orange Pineapple. Ooh, I got to try that. It is very, very good. And not super pineapple like all fake flavors. It doesn't taste exactly like the the, the words that are on it, but it is evocative of a, a fresh tropical breeze that is just, just refreshes you and brings you along. I, I would also ask Dean whether he would be willing to take on a quasi-official role with the podcast as translator of such terms. The, Gen Z terms. To to be, yeah, to be our Gen Z ombudsman, ombudsman, that would be helpful. So Dean, please consider becoming the official Gen Z ombudsman for Ink Stained Wretches. Chris, your favorite segment of the week. Mm-hmm. Favorite items where I am forced against my will to say something nice. But Chris, you lead by example. You're going to like Be my this guess. one. You're going to like this one from Philly Voice, the alternative newspaper in Philadelphia. Michael Tannenbaum, my, my shout out goes to Michael Tannenbaum of the Philly Voice staff for the following story under this headline. Northeast Philly Catholic School accidentally sold Mother's Day flowers stuffed with thongs stuffed with thongs and goes on to detail the story at St. Anselm school on Dunks Ferry road in the Parkwood neighborhood where students pre-K through eighth grade sold fake roses that had red thongs folded inside the flowers and a family, of course, because it is 
these are the times posted the video the dad took the so basically it's underpants folded up to look like a rose sold not as a mother's day gift but probably like a gas station valentine's day kind of thing and they bought the wrong ones at the school and sold them and as a fundraiser and then the kids took them to their moms and gave them underpants so i love that i find it wonderful and i'm i'm a huge fan of those that kind of coverage and those kinds of stories and it's my favorite of the week so i just want to just want to tell the good the good folks at philly voice and michael tannenbaum well done sir that is awesome my favorite item reminded me that the new york times still does good journalism and the headline on this item from last weekend, I had to come into the office on Saturday morning. So I'm like sitting in my computer and I see the headline, Goodwill sold a bust for $34.99. It's an ancient Roman relic. Amazing headline. And the subhead line is, it's a two, it's 2000 year journey to Texas remains a mystery, but the buyer is returning it to the German state of Bavaria. It's pre-World War II home. And the quotes in here from, the woman, Laura Young, who bought this item from a Goodwill store in Austin, Texas, are amazing. She says the following about the bust. The story says she had named it Dennis Reynolds after a character from the comedy series. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Like that vain and narcissistic cad, the 52 pound marble bust was, quote, a very difficult, cold, aloof, emotionless man that caused some problems for me, Ms. Young said. I got it outside in the light, she said. He had chips to the base. He had clear repairs. He looks old. I've been to museums. I've seen Roman portrait heads before. She did a Google image search for Roman bust and realized, quote, they look a lot like my guy. (laughs) I love that. And then it goes how she strapped it into her front seat, drove the thing around. It's such a fun and funny story. And I would love to meet this woman. She sounds awesome. It was a great choice. It's a great story. I love that. And it just, it goes to show you, I I'm, I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but the Times is really capable of doing great stuff. They really, really are. When they have the resources and they have the reporters to do a story like this that just otherwise would fall through the cracks and, and kudos to them. Good call. Chris, sadly, That is all the time we have left today for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for wretches. Wretches.